0: It, I'll invite anyone whose chair is like, uh, you know, if you're twisting your neck and you want to turn your chair so you don't hurt your neck, feel free to do so. Um, and we'll just uh, we'll just get gently started. Welcome to the last session of our of our series called Searching Issues. Um, and this series has largely been about examining. Um, questions that are common in society today and that are that may be easier or harder to answer and for sure a lot of people have sort of their own ideas and their own views and that's why it's been done in this format of a dinner and a discussion. If this is your first time here as you've seen we started with some dinner and then there'll be a short talk now uh, followed by some discussion um, at your tables. Before I get right into the heart of this, I'd like to give a bit of a disclaimer. Um, this is a very sensitive and could be a very painful topic for um, for all kinds of different people. Whether this affects you personally or family or friends or or not at or, or not at all. Um, it could be something uh, that is uh, very sensitive for you. Um, the rate of people who self disclose as having um, some question regarding their sexual orientation, uh, right across the spectrum to being um, uh, outspokenly gay, in the Coptic Orthodox Church is 10%. So if there's 40 people here tonight, that's four people, that's one person at each table. So um, I would. I will try my very hardest to be as gentle and as sensitive, yet as honest as I can be. And I will ask you to do the same. I have about five friends um, that come to me for spiritual guidance and um, help who are um, gay men. And before I start, I would like to um, give them a lot of thanks for their patience with me, and for their kindness, and for the education that they have given me. So, uh, without any reservation, I would like to offer them a hand of applause. Just to get us warmed up, um, I'm gonna share uh, something with you that uh, my wife and I enjoy, which is just a Netflix series called Downton Abbey. And there is, um, there is, a clip there that I thought will probably um, inspire some of the discussion. Uh, Without further ado, we'll jump into that. I'll ask somebody to hit the lights, please. The turn of the century, sort of 19, maybe uh, late late 19 teens, early 1920s, and these are two servants in Downton Abbey, a large, you know, a large picturesque um, household of a a lord and a lady, um, and they have all of these, all of these servants, um, and one of the servants, Thomas, is gay, and he has sought some form of conversion therapy in London. Um, and it hasn't gone so well for him. Uh, and so they're going to see the local doctor in the town. And this is another servant lady who is his friend. You have to understand that servants in this time were not... It wasn't like um, a bad thing to be a servant. It was what middle class people did. Uh, or a lot of them, anyways. Um, and so uh, so he's just seen the doctor uh, and his friend, the la- his lady friend there is... is is. Um, speaking with the doctor. As long as it stops poisoning himself. You've had a look at the things you brought then. You've been injecting yourself with a solution of saline. That's not harmful though, is it? Obviously it wasn't sterilized. Repeated injections would cause fever, and abscesses at the site. I assume this is a course of treatment you spent money on? Yes, a lot of money. I went to London for what they call electrotherapy and the pills and injections were supposed to continue the process. The purpose of which was? I'd like to tell you where my journey began. Uh, Where my journey began uh, was somewhere at the very beginning of college. I was 17, I made all of these new friends um, and they were great and I really loved them and they, you know, as far as I could tell, really liked me too. Um, And it was was a lot of fun. I, I went to a small high school so this was the first time in my life I got to choose my own friends. And I was like a little hippie, a little granola. And so I found people like me, maybe for different reasons. But we all kind of like, you know, and then I I lived in the suburbs. So I commuted on the commuter train, like the the equivalent to the GO train. And so did a bunch of them, specifically one guy. And we totally hit it off. And one day he just came up to me and he told me, how can you be so Christian, so religious, and yet be so like, kind and accepting and, and all this stuff and I couldn't understand what he was talking about. And
1: later on he asked
0: me the same question and how it was that I could be his friend and for the life of me I still couldn't understand what he was talking about until he came out to me that he was gay. And for two weeks I felt like I got hit by a missile. I felt so strange. I didn't know I didn't know what I felt. I obviously liked this fellow and I obviously wanted to continue being his friend, but I just had no idea what to do with myself. And that's when I realized that if there has been any change or rupture in our friendship, it actually has nothing to do with him. He hasn't changed. I have. I have acquired some new knowledge about sexual orientation and sexual sexual choices that may have made me uncomfortable I confess at the time but that was the beginning of my journey to realize that this is a journey about me and about what I want and what I want to change and how I'm going to deal with this because nothing actually injured our relationship that came from him it was all about me. It took me a couple of weeks to, to read and think and reflect and get my head wrapped around this and we continue to be excellent friends thereafter. The Bible is a story of God's love for all humanity. God loves all people, irrespective of their age, their ethnic background, their color, uh, their sexual orientation, height, weight, eye color, none of that matters. God's love is for all. Jesus came to save, not to condemn. Jesus clearly says multiple times, I did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. Christians ought to do the same, ought to affirm the love of God to all people, showing sensitivity and understanding, rejecting all forms of of prejudice in whatever whatever forms they may come in. This is a statement from the House of Bishops um, in the Church of England that says, this carries with it the duty to be active in protecting those who are victimized, since it is sadly true that members of the gay and lesbian community are all too often not only verbally disparaged and abused or made the targets of cruel so-called humor, but are also physically assaulted. On the other hand, the LGBT movement is urging the view of homosexuality is simply a natural variant of human sexuality, just as natural as as red hair or left-handedness, to be affirmed and rejoiced in, and that this is an expression of, of fully loving, physical, sexual liberation to be embraced by all people. What can we make of these statements? I think the question that we can ask I learned something in my master's degree some questions can be answered and some questions are very difficult albeit almost impossible to answer from a very pragmatic perspective it's often better to ask the questions that you can answer so I put the question this way what is a Christian attitude towards homosexuality or LGBTQ or the gay movement I'm gonna use all those terms sort of, you know, as equals, although they're not, but we'll just allow them to be so for now. Is homosexual practice an option for Christians? Can homosexual orientation be changed, or is such a change even desirable? These are the things we're gonna try to look at today. Last week we talked a lot about why God created us as sexual creatures, and we talked about love, and that love comes in sort of three main varieties, agape, philo, and eros, and that eros is this erotic love, and that God loves us with all three forms of love, but that eros is an irrational love, and quite frankly, it's really hard to talk about it, or to to, to, to uh you know, uh, study it or anything because it's irrational. And it requires a certain degree of participation for us to appreciate it, and that God has given us our human sexuality and our human sexual relationships to be an icon of the model of the relationship of divine erotic love between God and humanity as a whole, between God and the church specifically, and most specifically, between God and each and every person. I'm not going to go through all of that again today, but that's the basis of sexuality that we're talking about. And in this relationship, we see Christ as the bridegroom. This icon picture here, the title of it is Christ, the bridegroom. Here he is, having going to, to the cross, shamed and defamed, so that he can pay the bride price for his bride, which is you and which is me. This is God's context for sexual intercourse. And when Jesus is asked about divorce in Matthew 19, he clearly says that when in the beginning, when God created them, he created them male and female. And the two shall become one flesh. And what God has joined together, let no man separate. And he's referencing Genesis 2, 24. Clearly, Jesus refers not only to humanity, but specifically to the genders of male and And that's the only reference that Jesus gives um, uh, like this. No reference is made to any same-sex relationship, particularly in marriage. Hence, all sexual activity as we understand it, homosexual or heterosexual outside of marriage, is ruled out. What does the Bible say? Okay, deep breath. If we're gonna look at scripture, I think we need to do it honestly, gently, kindly, and courageously, because the words of Scripture are very clear and very strong. And perhaps we may find ourselves wrestling with a gap between what we see said in Scripture and what our preconceived notions are like prior to being here in this talk, or what we've experienced in life, personally or through our friends, or through what our own very personal orientation choices are. St. Paul is very clear. He says, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, or idolaters, or adulterers, or men who have sex with men, or thieves, nor the greedy, drunkards, or slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Very simply and clearly. Unfortunately, or fortunately, there is li- ri- li- really very little wiggle room in these verses. And I can do like a lot more expository teaching about this, but in, in, in the effort to move on, and to kind of give the, the breadth of the topic, and, and anyone who wants to speak with me on a one-on-one level, please come and do so. St. Paul continues though, and he says, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So St. Paul is suggesting... How do I go back? St. Paul is suggesting that this is, was an original state that people were in. And then when they met Christ and joined his body and joined his church, they were changed. So he doesn't really leave, he really doesn't leave any room for this to persist and continue within the church. That said, this is not an opportunity to condemn or to judge anyone. Why we may ask why such a strong stance and where does this where does this come from is this just some um, is, ju- is this just some arbitrary prejudice or is this just some arbitrary decision that that heterosexuality if that's a, a, a way of being straight is normal and everything else is not wh- where does this come from it comes from a concept of corporate rebellion explain a little further. St. Paul's words, again referring to homosexuality in in Romans, are very clear. He says, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even the women exchanged exchanged the natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. What St. Paul is saying here is not to be understood on a personal level. I have rejected God, I have clung to all my own thoughts and my own ideas, I have rebelled against God, and hence God has left me to my debased ways. That's not, that's not how the church understands these phrases. The church understands these phrases rather corporately. The church is not so... Attached, interested to this concept of individuality and individualism. And I recognize that that's very hard for us, particularly in a Western culture, to interface with and to accept. But the first church was much more communal, much more corporate. If one person sinned, the whole community sinned. And it didn't matter so much who sinned. It, ma- it mattered what the community as a whole, as a body, was going to do about it. And of course the desirable action was for the community to embrace embrace the person who had sin and love them and bring them, a, bring them to a place where it's easier for them to live in holiness. More, more specifically, Oswald Chambers says sin is not weakness, it is a disease. It is red-handed rebellion against God, and the magnitude of that rebellion is expressed by Calvary's cross, namely the cross of Christ. St. Athanasius prefers to use slightly different words. He explains it very simply like this. He says, Our creation and God's incarnation are most intimately connected. As by the word man was called from non-existence into being and further received the grace of a divine life, So by the one fault which forfeited that life, they again incurred corruption and untold sin and misery filled the world. This is not to be understood solely in the context of this discussion of homosexuality, but basically how did we go from being naturally created, perfect beings? You know, like, I'll tell you something. This last month I've had no end of pain from my iPhone. I go get a new phone, and it works great. And I keep it for about a year and three quarters. It doesn't even make the two year mark, and it won't work anymore. How is it that we came out of the factory, and we were perfect, and everything was fine. My iPhone came out of perfect, it came out perfect and it was fine. And now, a year and three quarters later, it, it doesn't want to do what it's meant to do. It, does some things, other things it won't do, sometimes it does things it's not supposed to do, and so on. That's what St. Athanasius is talking about. He's talking about how his understanding and understanding of the church is that creation was created perfect, and it was preserved by the life of God. And when when humanity rejected God in disobedience, Namely, referring to the whole Adam and Eve and tree and serpent incident in, in in the Garden of Eden, that at that time, at that at that time, we rejected that bond we had with life. Well, if we reject life, he wasn't punished. Only Adam was, because Eve didn't do it on purpose. Adam did it, and he was told not to. And he if there will be any more interruptions, I'll just have to ask you to leave. So, with, with that rejection of life, if we depart from life, naturally the only other place to go is death. The process of dying is oftentimes referred to as, as sickness. And that sickness, that sickness, um, is what we're talking about. Now, I'm not referring to homosexuality specifically, or the LGBT movement more broadly, as, as sickness in the sense that it used to be referred to, for example, in psychiatric criteria previously. That's not what I'm referring to. St. Athanasius is saying that any deviation from what, how God created us initially to be, he understands from a medicinal perspective as illness. That includes all sin. That includes anger, uh, lust, jealousy, covetousness, greed, and all of those things as well. God did not create us for those things. But in our rejection of God corporately, in our rejection of God corporately, we have found ourselves with no guide, with no no rule to, to measure up to. And we have found ourselves with just our thoughts which have deviated from God. That's what St. Athanasius is talking about. That's what the Church believes to be true for all sin, for all spiritual illness, and for homosexuality and the LGBT movement, specifically as referred to in Romans chapter one. It is vitally important. This is critical. Like this may be the most important slide that nowhere does the Bible discriminate or condemn against a homosexual orientation, or against feelings, or against temptation. Everything that is spoken about is about behavior. That may or may not be a significant thing to you. Temptation in and of itself is not sin. In fact, in fact, In fact, the New Testament promises total forgiveness for anyone who accepts God's ideas as correct, my own, some of my own, part of my own as not, and asks for forgiveness. There is no condemnation for any man or any woman who is in Christ. And there's promise for temptation. There's the most beautiful promises in the Bible for temptation, and here's just one of them. No temptation has overcome you except what is common to humankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. It's God's job to make a way out of any and all temptation. Tony Campolo a great American sociologist and pastor and author says, it is very important that all of us distinguish between a homosexual orientation and homosexual behavior. He goes on to say that any who believe that, that these homosexuals, those who are people um, who are, have same-sex attraction for the lack of a better term and choose God's thoughts over their own and their own feelings, who remain celibate for the sake of Christ are anything less than glorious victors in God's kingdoms ought to be ashamed of themselves. And I thoroughly agree. Christopher Townsend, another modern-day Christian writer, says, The life of Christ shows us that neither a committed exclusive partnership nor sexual experience is essential to personal fulfillment. Jesus, who lived the only perfect human life, was single and celibate. The need not to be alone may be met through friendships without sexual intimacy. Indeed, while human sexuality is affirmed by the Bible, its significance is also qualified. Our true humanity does not ultimately rest in our sexuality, but in fulfilling our capacity for personal communion with God. I think this is where the Church's main stance is. And this is maybe a sub-point, a subsidiary issue, but as I understand things, I think this is critical. What's critical is that in our over-sexualized society, we have begun to consider nothing other than our sexuality, our expression of our sexuality, our sexual thoughts, as our identity. I am straight, I am gay. I don't believe that, forgive me. I believe that I am human. I am a beloved child of God, and what I do In my private bedroom is just an activity is just my behavior now I know and I've had this discussion with my friends and all of them have told me that that may be easy for me to say because I don't feel that I'm the one who's going counter culture so I'm not the one with the with the the deep-rooted feelings inside of me that are against what culture, society, and so on, has been saying. And in a a need to affirm those feelings, that my sexual orientation could be seen as my identity. I hear that. I hear that. It's complex. It's not not something that that, that can be answered in a 30-minute talk. This is rather a beginning for your discussions rather than an end to them. Well then, how does homosexuality arise? Is it a choice? Is it nature? Is it nurture? Where does this come from? There are lots of theories. Some scientific theories are affirming that there is scientific basis for it. You know, the, the gay gene has been the Holy Grail for a long time, and many times Um, scientists have felt they've they've almost found it, and then other studies have disproven it. Is it nurture, is it early childhood experiences between sort of the ages of two and 12, largely related but not exclusively to the the role of a same-sex parent or same-sex authority figures? Maybe, maybe not, we don't know. But from a very pragmatic perspective, the only answer I have to is it a choice, how then did homosexuality arise? The only answer I have for you is that it certainly didn't arise from a choice because you don't choose your genetics, you don't choose your parents, you don't choose your coaches, you don't choose your, your, your authority figures of the same gender in your early childhood, you don't choose any of that stuff. So whether it's nature or whether it's nurture, in the overwhelming majority, For the overwhelming majority of people who identify as lesbian or gay or transgender, it's not a choice. I don't think at this point, in 2017, we can continue to say that the majority of the LGBT community has chosen to be quote, unquote, that way. I don't think that's fair. And every single one of my friends who are gay who have come to me for guidance or spirituality or whatever, the first thing they've said, and this may or may not be what everyone else who's gay is saying that, there's obviously a bias of the people coming to speak to me, have said to me, Father John, this was not my choice. And for every one, single one of those men, my answer is, I agree. And we share tears. So, what's our response to these? Our response to every human being should never be affected by their sexual orientation or their choices. That said, it's up to each person to take responsibility for who they are and where they're at in life, and to make the most of what they're able to do with it. Even if there may be a scientific basis, it doesn't mean that this was God's will. And I could branch out into a whole 20 minute discourse about God's will and God's good will and his permissive will and all of these things, but I'm not going to go there, but if you do want to discuss this with me, I'd be delighted. I'll give an example, and again, I'm not equating homosexuality to an illness, but um, oftentimes people say if it's genetic, it must be God's will. Well, if we understand things the way St. Athanasius did, we understand that we've kind of evolved into illness. We, didn't, we weren't created initially with illness. And again, I'm just reiterating and repeating, this does not mean I think that homosexuality is an illness. It's just an analogy, a poor one at that, but it is, right? Do we tell people who have the BRCA1 gene, who have a 100% risk of breast cancer by complete adulthood, and have to have total mastectomies and later on have their gynecological organs removed in prevention of cancer. They're born with that gene. Do we tell them that that's their sin, their own personal sin, or do we we say rather than the opposite, that God created us this way? He created the BRCA1 gene, and he wants people to have breast cancer and need prophylactic surgery, life-altering, surgery to save their lives, God created them that way, because they're born with it, even if there is indeed a gene that we haven't quite put our finger on. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's God's will. Can a same-sex orientation be changed? I know the question itself even sounds, forgive me, to me, the question itself even sounds somewhat offensive. And forgive me if I've offended you people may be thinking, is this some kind of, you know, disease, or or is this an affront to my identity or to my self-esteem? I'm going to take a very pragmatic approach. There's another document that was drafted to kind of give some principles, some guiding principles, in the Anglican Church on dealing with this called St. Andrew's Day Statement. And it reads, at the deepest ontological, the word ontological is a theological word that means in essence, in the essence of things, at the deepest essential level, there can be no such thing as a homosexual or a heterosexual. There are human beings, male and female, called to a redeemed humanity in Christ. This is my personal, practical advice. I never suggest for anyone Gay or not to seek to change themselves that's not what Christianity is about if it is then physician heal myself then what need have you of God if you're here to change yourself if this is some self-help community program then you should help yourself that's not what we're that's not what the church is that's certainly not what this church is this church is about seeking God and letting Him change us. If I could be a little bit more explicit, don't seek to change yourself. Simply surrender to God, whatever His ideas may be. Surrender, surrender to God, whatever His ideas may be. Because there's no one more loving, there's no one more kind, no one more gentle, no one more respectful, In the entire universe, there's no one who believes in you and who loves you more than him. So if there's any being on the face of the Earth, as I know him, that it would be safe to surrender to, it would be him. That said, if if someone wishes to seek therapy, by all means. If they wish to see a psychiatrist or a psychotherapist or a psychologist, by all means. But I would suggest that you proceed with caution. I would suggest that you proceed with caution. I would suggest that we all see fellowship, friendship, community. I would suggest that we all embrace this loving and accepting attitude. That, I would suggest, without any reservation. I I would suggest that all of us, gay or not, search inside of us, at where we've been hurt, and that we learn to forgive. I would suggest in conclusion that none of us throw stones, particularly not in the domain of sexuality. Jesus himself chose not to condemn a woman caught in the very act of adultery. Who am I, who am I to throw stones? (coughs) Archbishop of Canterbury, Robert Runcie, says, In the earthly tabernacle of Christ's kingdom there are many mansions, and all of them are made of glass. If your house is made of glass, I suggest you don't throw stones. So what should our attitude be? Unconditional. Love and acceptance. Love and acceptance is not tolerance. I would... I think, and it's a question for discussion, that tolerance is to simply be tolerant of somebody. I'm t- I-, I, will, I will be able to tolerate someone's presence. Loving them is a whole different ball of wax. Loving them requires an outward movement, requires a certain form of outreach, or it requires for me to go out of myself to reach out to this person. That doesn't mean that we don't recognize sin as sin, and that we that we condone sin. That's not what I'm saying. Saint Peter encourages us <clears throat> to quietly trust yourself to Christ our Lord. And if anyone asks you why you believe as you do, be ready to tell him. And do it in a gentle and respectful way. My suggestion is that we don't have to go about declaring sin and throwing stones or or saying this or saying that. But if asked, I think the only honest thing to do is to answer gently, respectfully, and honestly. My opinion, my personal opinion. And take it with a grain of salt. Because it's just me. I would say speak the truth in love. Let scripture do the speaking the truth part. And let the way that you relay that. Be the love part. This is a very unique combination. In John chapter 1. Describing the incarnation of Christ. Saint John says about Jesus. That he was Full of grace and truth. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What a high bar to try to live up to. To be as gracious and as loving as Jesus. To be able to say, Where are those accusers of yours? Neither do I condemn you. Yet in the same breath say, Go and sin no more. To speak graciously but to speak truthfully. God help us to do that. What else can we do? We can repent. Because, as I started off by saying, if I do accept this as sin, it's not sin of the bad gay person out there. It's the sin of all of us. It's my sin. My repentance will bring healing to every person, to every person in the room. Another quote says, The story of the church's attitude to homosexuality, homosexuality, homosexually oriented people, has too often been one of prejudice, ignorance, and oppression. All of us need to acknowledge that and to repent for any part we may have had in it. I, first and foremost. John Stott, sort of recently departed, um, very well-known author, celibate single man, says, at the heart of the homosexual condition, indeed of the whole human condition, is a deep loneliness. The natural human hunger for mutual love, a search for identity, and a, a longing for completeness. If homosexual people cannot find these things in the local church family, we have no business to go on using that expression. It is my firm opinion that if someone who is self-professingly gay cannot feel loved and welcomed here, in this parish, then I'm not sure whether we should be here at all. Love is the key, first and last. We are called to be like him and to go out and love as he loved us first. If you want to read more and have a more orthodox um, perspective, this is a great book and I'll leave it up there for you. If you need help getting a copy of it, I- I'd be happy to share it with you. I'm sure I've left you with a lot to discuss. Enjoy your discussions.